Amen. Well, it is in that power that we gather and sing and look to God's Word together today. So, uh, if you will, turn your Bible there to Acts chapter 13. Uh, That will be our text this Lord's Day. Uh, If you're new to Bloomfield, we walk through the Scriptures together here, and so we are coming close to the halfway point now in our study of Acts as we have been walking through this book of the Bible together. Uh, Last week we started looking at Acts 13, and at the point uh, in the life there of the church where the focus has shifted in Acts from Jerusalem to Antioch, and now we see here uh, that missionaries have been sent out from that church, Barnabas and Paul, and today we will read about some of their mission activity uh, as they go to the synagogue there in Antioch and proclaim the gospel. And so we're going to look today at Acts 13, looking at verses 13 through 52. So I add a reverence for the Word of God. If you're able, if you would stand as I read this text for us today. Acts 13, beginning in verse 13. This is what God's Word says to us. Now, Paul and his companion set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Before His coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and to those among you who fear God, To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God has promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also is written in the second psalm, 
You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to this corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. Stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust off from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Father God, we ask that you would fill us with joy and your spirit now as we seek to understand and live according to your word. Pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, friends, as we already mentioned this morning, uh, this is our... Memorial Day weekend, tomorrow we will celebrate a day that has been celebrated for a very long time. The nations like ours have always found ways to celebrate, to, to honor those who have given their lives for their freedom. Uh, here in our own nation there are various accounts, but many believe that the first Memorial Day was celebrated in May of 1866 in Waterloo, New York. It began actually as Decoration Day. It was a day when people would go out and they would decorate the tombs, the grave sites of Union soldiers. And the years that followed there after the Civil War, many occurrences, many observances like this happened in the southern states as well. And eventually our nation became united in honoring those who had given their lives through the observance of Memorial Day. It's a day that we set aside to remember. Because, friends, if we don't set aside things to make us remember, well, we forget. We forget the price of freedoms that we have. And as believers, we are called to 
Remember what it took for us to be in this place today to have the freedoms we have, not just as nation, uh, as citizens of this nation, but as citizens of the kingdom of Christ. See, there are those who gave their lives long before our nation was even formed in order that we might have freedoms that today we often neglect. Freedoms like the ability to read God's word in a language that we can understand. And for many years in the church, this was not the case. You go back hundreds of years ago in the church and you find a time of great corruption and and one of the forces in that corruption in the hierarchy of the church was that the authorities in the church did not want the scripture in a language that the common people could understand. They preferred to keep it in Latin even if while reading it and preaching it no one understood Latin. And so in many churches going back centuries ago you would find A copy of the scriptures in Latin, the Latin Vulgate, would be there on a pulpit like this one, except it would be chained to it so that the common man could not take it and read it for themselves, even if they could understand the language. Well, there were men of God along the way who saw that this was not how it should be. Men like John Wycliffe in the 14th century. Wycliffe was dedicated to translating the scriptures from the Latin to the English so that we today and people then might be able to read it and understand it. And as a result, he was declared a heretic. He actually died of a stroke in 1384, but years after his death, the controversy had not ended. The church held a council and decided he was a heretic, and so they actually went and dug up his bones and burned them at a stake along with the Bible that he had translated. There will be others that will come behind him, people like Jan Hus of Czechoslovakia. Jan Hus was also one who felt the scripture should be translated in a language that we can understand. He too was declared a heretic. He then was burned at the stake for doing this. Many others would come in years to follow, people like William Tyndall, Martin Luther, others who believed that God has given his word not just to an authority in the church, but to the people in the church, that we should be able to read this word and understand it and live under the authority of it. And so today, I want to remind us of this freedom that we have, lest we forget, (laughs) and of this great privilege we have to read the Bible and to grow from it, because it is the scripture that we see Paul and Barnabas sharing here on their missionary journeys. And so as we walk through The majority of this text, which is really a sermon by Paul, I just want to point out to you the great benefit we have of having God's Word before us today and the ability to read and grow from it. We'll begin with point one there in your notes, the reminder that we we need the encouragement of God's Word. And notice here, as Paul and Barnabas travel, they come to Antioch, and there on the Sabbath they go to the temple, and there in the temple, as was customary... Uh, The law and the prophets, sections of the law and the prophets are read. These are pieces of the Old Testament. And what was customary in this day would be that the the rulers of that synagogue, the elders in that area, they they would stand, they would read a portion of the Scripture, and then if there were visitors there with them, they would invite those visitors to stand up and then essentially to preach from that text, to to exposit it, to share from it, to give a word of encouragement, as they mentioned here. Now think about if we were to practice that today. (laughs) Some of you grew up in a church, and perhaps this was done here, where on Sunday the the usual practice was if you were a visitor, there was a little visitor card there, and there was this little rose sticker. (laughs) 
And you put that rose sticker on if you were a visitor. And then everybody knew you were the visitor. And they'd come up and greet you and be nice to you and all those things. I remember as a child visiting churches and having that little rose sticker. And I'm not sure when that ended. But I'm guessing at some point people thought, you know, we're, we're kind of making visitors uncomfortable. I don't know if they want to put the rose sticker on anymore. Or whatever reason they stopped doing it. Imagine if today you visit our church. I stand up and read Acts 13, 13 through 52. And then say, okay, is anyone a visitor here today? And you kind of sheepishly raise your hand. Great, would you get up and preach from this text for us? (laughs) That might be a little bit more awkward than putting a rose sticker on. (laughs) But that is essentially the practice you had in the synagogue in Paul and Barnabas' day. That was the way it was because people studied the word of God and they knew it and they were able to defend it and exposit it. And so here you have this invitation given from the rulers of the synagogue, if you've got a word of encouragement, notice that phrase there, a word of encouragement for us. Think about the things that we typically refer to when we talk about encouragement. And when you tend to think about someone encouraging you, lifting you up, what's being communicated here was that the encouragement was God's word. And friends, for us as believers today, that this is the greatest source of encouragement we can have. That there's times we need encouragement in the form of a rebuke. And God's word does that. There's times we need encouragement in the form of just hope. And God's word does that. And so what we find in this text is that Paul and Barnabas are able to encourage these men from God's word just as we need to be encouraged today. And so what remains really falls under the umbrella of that encouragement and how it is that God's word was an encouragement to them and how it is God's word is an encouragement to us. And I want to point out just a few of these things. So point two there in your notes. God's word then shows us our need for the gospel. What Paul now does is he essentially picks up likely at a point where the scripture has been read. It tells us here that Something was read from the law and from the prophets. We don't know exactly what, but the indication would be there's probably something read in there referring to the Exodus because that's where Paul picks up. And then if you'll notice here, basically, Paul then goes on to summarize a great portion of the Old Testament. He refers to the Exodus. Most of you are familiar with what the Exodus was. If you were here in our church when we studied the book of Genesis We left off at the point where the nation of Israel, in order to escape famine, comes to Egypt. They leave the promised land in order to live. And when they get to Egypt, they are blessed and they grow greatly. But as the story goes, this becomes a threat to the Egyptians. And so eventually there's a change of leadership there. And those who favored Joseph long forget what those before them had done and Those who follow those. And so then what happens is the Israelites become enslaved. And so what Paul shares here is that even during that slavery, for centuries, God grew his people and God blessed his people and ultimately God delivered his people. And so Paul says that he rescued them out of slavery. Now picture this. For hundreds of years they're enslaved to the Egyptians. And they have prayed and asked, God, would you save us? Then God saves them. And do you remember what happens? They grumbled and they complained. We don't have anything to eat. (laughs) So God provides food. You remember what they did? They grumbled and they complained. And so over and over again during this exodus, you see this pattern where God provides 
and the people complain. Paul says then, God continues in his provision. He gives them the promised land. He takes them into Canaan. He defeats their enemies. He takes them in the promised land. If you remember that in the scripture, you know what God did there. He said, I'm your God. You're my people. Here, I'm blessing you with this place. Remember what they did? They grumbled and they complained. They looked around all the foreign nations. And they noticed how all those nations had something they didn't. They had a king. Now they did have a king. God was their king. But they wanted an earthly king. And so again they complained to God. But God in his grace gave them a king in Saul. But then Saul does what the people do. He disobeys and he rebels. And so God replaces him with David. Now this is a point in the synagogue where as Paul is preaching this sermon, you might get an amen or two. <laughs> They're looking to David thinking, yes, finally, David. And Paul notes what the scripture says. A man after God's heart who will do his will. But do you remember what David did? David sinned greatly. David took what wasn't his. David killed he was an adulterer and a murderer, and he had great blood on his hands. Friends, what Paul is doing here for the Israelites is he is basically walking Israel through their history, and he's reminding them of some major themes in the Scripture. God provides, man rebels. God provides, man rebels. God provides, man rebels. And friends, that is the story we see played out until God provides one who will not fail because he is perfectly righteous. He provides Jesus. He provides the one who is God and man, who stands in the gap between God and man, and who can truly save his people. And what Paul is doing here is what we need to do when we come to the Scripture. He's helping the people to see how everything in the Bible points to Jesus. If you were here a couple weeks ago on Mother's Day, we had our family dedication. And with our family dedication, we always give our families a Jesus storybook Bible. And if you don't have one of these for your kids, your grandkids, even for yourself, I would recommend it greatly. Because of all the children's Bibles and books out there you can buy to teach your kids about Jesus, Sally Lloyd-Jones, who put this one together, she does a wonderful job helping families point their children and themselves towards this truth in the Scripture. That everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Because, friends, that's not the way a lot of us were raised in the church. A lot of us were raised learning stories and thinking things like, well, if I can just be more like David, or if I can just be more like Moses, or if I can have faith like Abraham. But when you study these men in the Scripture, you realize all these men fail. That there's got to be more to the Old Testament than be like this person. And that's what Sally Lloyd-Jones points out. And so I want to read you just a section from the introduction that I think makes this point very well. Uh, she, like Paul, basically points out this, this history of Israel. She does it in a much more artistic form with pictures. Uh, but here's what she says. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. 
Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and they run away, and at times they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible, most of all, is a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. Friends, that's what the scripture is about. I'd recommend this resource to you. We've got, this might be the last copy. We've got this and some other things on our bookstall outside of this door. But, but the reason I recommend it is because it does such a great job helping us to see what the scripture points us towards. What Paul is pointing us towards here. That everything in the scripture points to Jesus. And that is great news for us today. But Paul also reminds the people and reminds us that we don't always respond to that great news well. Point three there in your outline. He reminds us, God's word helps us to see that we're rebellious towards God. So you see, God's word exposes our rebellious nature towards God. Paul goes on then in his sermon to point out how the people rebel against God's provision. And so he says, all these things happen leading up to the need for Israel to have a redeemer. God gives them the redeemer and then what do they do? In their foolishness, they crucify. What are they doing there? They're continuing in their pattern of rebellion against God. But notice what Paul points out here. And this is where you see Just the the amazing sovereignty of God at work. Uh, Paul points out to the people, listen. God gave his son that we might have eternal life. But man has rebelled against God's son. But through man's rebellion, Christ goes to the cross in order to die so that rebellious people might have life. (laughs) And so even in their rebellion, God uses them as a part of his sovereign plan that the one who was perfect would die for those who rebelled and give them life. And friends, that that is a wonderful truth for us. Because we don't stand here before the word of God today with an offer, okay, if you are perfect, you can be saved. Or if you follow all the rules, you can be saved. Or if you just do this, this, and this, and not this, this, and this, you can be saved. Now we stand before the scriptures and before this sermon by Paul reminded that while we have rebelled against God, he has offered us salvation and a fulfillment of the scriptures. And so Paul points out to his listeners, listen, you've rejected Jesus, but listen, you can find freedom in Jesus. And he does this by helping them to see God's holy standard and how they have failed to meet that standard so often. 
You might think of it this way. I'm going to speak now of a hypothetical family that I've read about in books. So perhaps in this hypothetical family, they have children who don't always obey. Maybe you have read of families like this. And in these hypothetical situations, the parents say to the children, okay, okay, here's what I need you to do. I need you to stop hitting your sister. And then, parent turns and what happens? Okay, I, I just need to do this one thing. We've got a great day planned. We're have a lot of fun. We're going to go to the movies and get ice cream, do all these things. Here's what I need you. I just need you to clean your room so we can go. Hypothetically, what happens? The children manage to do anything in the world they can do to occupy their time other than do what? Clean their room. All the while telling you about how their siblings aren't cleaning their rooms. <laughs> and so how do we respond to that as parents? We lower the standard at times. Okay, if you could just physically get everything that's yours in your room and shut the door. <laughs> Let's start there. Uh, okay, if you, if you could just make your bed. We, we come up with these standards and say, listen, if you'll do all this, then I'll reward you with this. But then there's a problem. Our kids don't always obey, and they don't do all those things. And sometimes those rewards we're offering to them, we kind of want to, you know. We get ice cream when they get ice cream. We kind of want to see the movie that we're taking them to see. Maybe we already bought the tickets. That puts us in a bind. Can't quite take it away. So what do we do? We, we keep lowering the standard and lowering the standard. Okay, if, if we can get from point A to point B and y'all don't fight, then we'll go see the movie and you don't get to the first turn before what? They're fighting. Okay, if we can make it the rest of the way without you fighting. Okay, if we can make it a millimeter without you fighting. And we just keep lowering the standard and lowering the standard. What does that show us? It just shows us that rebellious nature we have. It shows us our tendency to disobey and and, and here's where Paul takes us. God doesn't lower his standard. God's standard is holiness and righteousness. And no matter what we do to try to meet that standard, we fail and we come up short. And God does not come to us in his holiness and righteousness and say, okay, if you just sinned a little less, <laughs> if you tried a little harder... I mean, think about this. We've talked about this before. What did Adam and Eve do in the garden? I mean, it's not that Adam punched his wife. Or Eve took a knife to Adam's throat and said, I'm not going to listen to you, Adam. They ate a piece of fruit. And in response to that act of disobedience, mankind is condemned to an eternal hell. What does that show us? Is that say, well, God's just mean? <laughs> no, friends. What it says is God is holy. And all it takes is one act of disobedience and rebellion to deserve the condemnation that comes then from it. And Paul here points that out to the people. And he'll continue to point that out to people. Romans 3.23 all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. God's standard is perfection and we fall short. 
It doesn't matter how long you've been a member of this church or in any other. It doesn't matter what type of perfect attendance towards you got in Sunday school class. It doesn't matter what class you're part of, how long you've been involved, what committees you've served on, or whether you're the pastor of the church. We all fall short of God's holy standard. And the scripture says as a result of that, we are deserving of death eternally. But that is not the only news Paul shares. He shares with that bad news some good news too, which leads us to the last point there in your notes, point four. God's word ultimately leads us to rejoice or to reject. Here Paul walks his listeners through these two realities. (laughs) We can hear about what we deserve and then hear the good news of God's provision of Christ and we can receive that joyfully or we can reject it. And Luke gives us a picture of how people do both of those things here in response to Paul and Barnabas. Verse 42 there, we see that they are received well by many. There are actually people, when they're done preaching, who beg them to come back and preach some more. who actually follow them out of the synagogue and say, keep telling us stuff, keep telling us stuff. They, they want to learn and they want to grow and hear from it. That, that shows us there's some people that receive this well, but we also read in the text there's some who don't receive it so well. Verse 46, Paul points out the rejection of some, the Jews. This isn't speaking of all Jews present. It's speaking, I believe, of the Jewish leaders there in the synagogue And Paul says this to him. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But listen to what he says. But you thrust it aside. The the Greek there means they they tossed it. They rejected it. They got rid of it. They threw it out with the trash. They They don't want anything to do with it. So here's the free offer of the gospel. And he's saying, you took this offer and you threw it out on a trash heap. You completely rejected it. And then notice what he says. And you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. The Greek phrase there is a reference to a set of scales. In the Roman world, scales were used often in the marketplace. And so you would go to the market and perhaps you wanted to buy, we'll use our measurements, a pound of of grain. Well, how did you know you were getting a pound of grain? Well, they would bring out these scales and they would take something that weighed a pound and they put it on one side. And then they'd take something to hold that grain, they'd put it on the other side, and then they'd pour it until that equivalent measurement was met. And then your scales even out. Now just think about this for a second. I've encountered many, and perhaps you fall under this umbrella yourself, who think somehow one day we're going to stand before God and God's going to have a set of scales. And what people tend to think then in this analogy is, well, God's going to take our good works and the good deeds we've done, and He's going to measure them against what? And this is where it gets real distorted. We tend to think somehow God's going to measure our good works and the value of them by what? By our bad works. (laughs) And somehow if we did more good than bad, we're okay. And that is such flawed thinking. Because in the Roman world, and what Paul's pointing towards here, you didn't use scales to compare two things that were polar opposites of each other. You used scales to find if something measured up to the worth of something else. And so in God's economy, how this illustration works out is this. On one side, the measurement is God's perfect Son. It's holiness. It's righteousness. 
And then if you want to put your works up there, you put them up next to that and you fail. And what Paul points out here to the people is that that's what they have done when he says to them that you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. He's saying you, you people of Israel have taken your religion and your works and you placed it on a scale and you think somehow that's going to outweigh the righteousness of Christ and what he's offered to you. He says you've brought condemnation on yourself. What is he saying there? He's saying, friends, our, our most righteous acts don't look so righteous when we compare them to the righteousness of Christ. We think we're doing pretty good until we're measured by that which is perfect and flawless. And so the prophet Isaiah long before this said it this way, our, our righteous deeds, they're like a polluted garment. What a picture that is. That they're stained. That they're not any good. And so Paul here looks to the people and he says, listen, you have weighed, you have been weighed according to the righteousness of Christ, and you failed. You've rejected this message. And in rejecting it and relying on your own righteousness, you fail. That is the same word for us today in the church. Who think that by our own efforts and deeds and whatever it is we fill in the blank with, that somehow we're going to save ourselves. But that's not the only response we see. We also see here that there's some, the, the Gentiles, who receive the word, they receive the gospel, and they rejoice. Notice this, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And notice the language here. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There's two words there that are critical in this statement. Appointed. That, that Greek word means that they were chosen, they were elect, they were picked out. God did the work. Even the tense here of the word is very passive on the part of the people. What this means is, why did the Gentiles believe and the Jews in this situation didn't? Because God appointed them to. God took the blinders off their eyes. He helped them to see. He, he took whatever it was that was muffling their ears so they could hear. And he opened up their hearts so they could believe. He did that work in them. And you may hear that and think, well... My goodness, that sounds like they're just robots. Well, then look at the other word, believed. That that word indicates volitional action on the part of the Gentiles. And so God is doing this work in the power of His Spirit, and then the people are responding to that work, and appointed, believed, it fits together in this act of salvation that comes to them. That they respond, and as a result, they rejoice. So the very simple question for us is, how do we respond to God's Word? How are you responding to it right now? When you hear it read in the church, is it just like the Charlie Brown teacher, you know? Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> or does it give you life? And do you hear people read the Gospel from the Word and think, blah, 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 yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Or do you hear it and go, oh my goodness, this is astounding. God, God saved me. He's done this work so that I might help. I don't deserve this. And you're just overwhelmed. And like the Gentiles, you just rejoice. Why did they rejoice? Because up until this point, people treated them on the outside and said, you don't have a chance. And God says, no, you've got every chance. Come on in. And they're so excited to be a part of the kingdom. Are you excited to be a part of the kingdom today? 
Or is this boring to you? Does this seem like some type of burden to you? So you may be one who says, oh, I haven't rejected the gospel. I responded to the gospel years ago. I, I, I surrendered my life to Jesus. I was baptized. I became a member of the church. But do you realize that since then and now, you may be rejecting God's word? Maybe you haven't rejected the biblical truth that Jesus is the Son of God who died in your place for your sin, but maybe you've rejected something else. Maybe you've rejected God's standard for relationships. How God tells you to spend your money or not spend your money. How God says you're to live. God's word is not multiple choice, pick and choose what you'll do. And so if you're rejecting part of it, it says of itself you're rejecting all of it. And so are you doing that today? Or or are you rejoicing in it? Even when it says stuff you don't like, do you find joy in that? Are you grateful for that? Lord, thank you because left to myself, this leads to death. And you're saying to me, stop. Thank you, God, for telling me that. Consider this as we close. 1 John 5, 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. By this we know the love of the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Friends, God's word is not a burden for us. It is a great source of joy for those who believe. And so we invite you today to experience that joy if you have not. To repent and surrender your life to Christ. We invite you, believer, to consider is there any aspect of your life where you are rejecting God's word and to bring yourself under the authority of it today. Whatever it is, we invite you to rejoice and not to reject. So if you would pray to that end with me. Father God, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray we would live in authority, under the authority of it. And Lord, I just ask now that you would do a work that only your spirit can do, that you would shine the light in the darkness, that you would remove the blinders, that people might see the truth of your word and live according to it. Lord, I, I pray for believers here today who perhaps there's a place in their life, part of their life, you, you know what it is, maybe you are convicting them of it right now where they're not living surrendered completely to the authority of your word, where, where they're basically saying they want a different king and they want to do things their way. Father, I pray that you would give them a disdain for that sin and call them to faith and repentance. Lord, for those here today who, who don't understand the gospel, who haven't responded to the gospel, who hear this and it's just kind of foolishness to them, Father, would you open up their eyes to see? And Lord, would you help us all to believe and rejoice in that belief, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, if you would stand together as we close this morning and offer an opportunity to respond to God's Word. And during this time, it's simply a time for you to reflect on God's Word. We all have places to go and things to do, but it's important that we remember what God's Word says and we consider how do we need to apply it to our life. And so we want to give you a chance just to think through that right now. So even as we sing, consider, Lord, what would you have me to do in response to this Word? And if He's leading some of you to come and and confess Christ, join this church, we certainly invite you. But this time is for all of us to just take a moment to reflect on God's Word and respond as He leads.